Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Dave Parker. Dave is a five-time founder and has been a part of 11 transactions as a founder, operator, board member, and advisor. Dave is the managing partner of DK Parker, where he helps founders scale their companies for growth and exit. His 20-plus year career has highlighted his ability to innovate new ideas and scale products and companies in the U.S. and internationally. Dave recently published Trajectory Startup Ideation to Product Market Fit where he continues to help early stage founders in the process of creating a new startup. For the last 15 years, he has held executive positions at software development, enterprise IT and professional services, software distribution and hardware companies. Today, he serves on the board of directors for many West Coast companies. Welcome, Dave. Good to Thanks, see you. Thanks, Yeah, it's great to be here. Super I'm so excited. glad that you're here. And by the way, what an idyllic background. For the listeners, nobody can see, but Dave is just... He's living in an, a very cool, serene house that I'm very jealous of with the cutest little dog, Daisy. Well, she may, she'll be cute until she jumps up into the camera yeah, view and we'll see okay. how, we, how we hold her off. We're used to rolling like that. We're, we have more humanity now than we've had in 15 or 20 years of getting to know I people's lives. I could not agree more. I could not agree more. Okay, I'm going to hit you with some rapid fire. Are you ready? Go for it. Yeah. Okay. All right, my Peloton friend, who's your favorite instructor? Oh, well, right now, I would say it would be Kendall Toole. I love Kendall. You like the head yeah. flip? <laughs> uh, well, she, she definitely sells that part of it, um, but she's super high energy. I'm a, I'm a big Matt Welpers fan as well. Yeah. So I'm coming up on my 400th ride. So it took oh me gosh. 13 months to get to, to 100, and then it took me less than a year to get to 300, and I'm coming up on my 400th ride and, and super excited about riding outdoors again, which is super yeah. exciting. Congrats. Okay. What has been your most embarrassing moment? Oh my God, there's so many of them. Um, I actually picked yeah. this special for you because you don't seem like, you seem like so calm and confident that I'm like, I wonder what could embarrass him. Probably nothing. Well, I mean, there's definitely been times on stage where you're like, I wish I wouldn't have said that. Or I, I was, I, I tend to be a little flippant with people. So there's been times where in public, I've given people feedback I wish I hadn't have done. And I can look back and go like, that was, it, it was embarrassing for me, but it's probably worse for them. Yeah. And that was really like, uh, that's a bummer. Well, these are all teachable moments. That's good. That's true. Okay. Is there a tech CEO who you most admire? Ooh, um, do I have to be current or can I go historic? No, just over time. So, like you've been in yeah. this for a while. No, I mean, you know, what Tim Cook's doing now, but, you know, Steve, Steve Jobs' work of innovating new things was so dramatically different than anybody else's of being completely innovative versus like incremental. It's like Steve's just Steve. Yeah. Yeah. He is iconic for sure. Okay. What has been the best concert that you've ever attended? I would have to say it would have been Scorpions and this <laughs> little band opened for them. I think they were called Motley something. Not Motley Crue. Motley. Oh my God. It was Motley Crue. How did you know? Were you there? <laughs> <laughs> so it was a great concert. So, you know, what's so crazy is that um, I tried for the first, I've done over a hundred of these now. And I tried to like totally mix up the rapid fire so that I, in case somebody had listened, that they, it was truly rapid fire. And now I'm kind of throwing that one in. Cause I just feel like I learned a lot about people asking about the concerts. Like you just see them and you picture them with like their younger self with like long hair rockers. I can't tell many people are rockers or like heavy metal fans. <laughs> so awesome. Yeah. That was a good one. I'm, I'm also a big fan of like Harry Connick Jr. And so I have very, all four of my kids are musicians, which is crazy. And um, are you I'm a musician? Not, no, my wife is, but I, uh, she would Catherine's say that I'm a musician. I, I didn't had, know that. Yeah. Uh, she would say that I'm, I'm musical, but I would argue that I'm really closer to tone on the continuum of tone deaf to musical. I'm closer to yeah. roadie, and I purchased <laughs> a lot of equipment for my kids. So my oldest son is plays lead guitar in a metal band. You can play fanboy. You can be the guy that's yep. like, yes. I've schlepped gear into every venue in Seattle. Oh, that's awesome. I want to hear more about that. Um, okay, so I don't, I'm not sure. I feel like you might be 
food wine guy. So I'm curious if you like, God forbid, had to have your last meal, what would it be? Oh, it'd be Italian with a big red. Oh. So, yeah. I mean, we're, you know, when we, when we think about where we're going to travel next, which we've been thinking about a lot lately, um, Italy's still one of our favorite places and, you know, having a, you know, one of those favorite moments was, you know, being on Lake Como, sitting near the water with a, you know, a chilled Chianti, which somebody would be like, a chilled Chianti, that was horrible. You know, it's 85 degrees outside, the answer is- Chilled Chianti it's, sounds it's brilliant. Where do you guys want to travel when the world opens up? Well, Italy? It's like, yeah, well, we've been there a bunch. A bunch is well, relative three times. Um, so more than for a kid from Washington, Washington, that's a lot. <laughs> so, but um, I've been doing a bunch of stuff in the Middle East over the last few years, and, and one of the programs that I work with is opening a couple new cities. So uh, Casablanca is on the list, and Amman, Jordan's on the list. So it's definitely two places where I'm like, definitely on the on the list of places. Oh my gosh, two places that I would not have thought to travel, but I'm dying to hear more. That's awesome. Okay, so I know that you're an author, and I love your book. Mm -hmm. I've got it right here. But if there was a book written about your life, what would it be called? Ooh, um, highs and lows, right? And sadly, we will learn more from the lows than you learn from the highs. So I think when I look back, there's like in the in the family in the, in the section to my kids at the beginning. It's like I don't know if you'll follow my journey, but I'll be proud of you, yeah. whatever you do, because the ups that. and downs have been so weird, right? The highs have been amazing, and the lows have been one of those. You're like, why did I choose that? That was like such a stupid thing to do. I love that. You're like, to my family, Brandon, Carson, Drew, and Lauren, I don't know if you'll follow my entrepreneurial journey, given the crazy ups and downs you've seen, but I do know that you'll follow your own and I'll always be very proud of you. I loved that. I got chills as a mom when I read that. Was that super sweet? And then you, of course, acknowledged your beautiful wife, Catherine, which is great. Okay. I think I know the answer to this, but are you an introvert or an extrovert? I'm, I would say I'm kind of an ambivert, actually. I can be on stage and performing, but it's super exhausting. And do you and put a you lot put of preparation a, into stuff or you just wing it? Uh, no, I'm a total over-preparer. Okay, so yes, Washougal guy. Where is Washougal, Washington? Wash, Washougal is in southwestern Washington. So you go to Vancouver, Washington, not Vancouver, Canada. Go south of Vancouver, Washington, hang a left. Get past the stinky part of the campus paper mill. They were our rival high school. And you get to Washougal, Washington. It was a town of about 3,500 people when I grew up there. Wow. And uh, I was so the, if we, I was if we the, had known each other back then, like fifth grade, seventh grade, what were you doing? How were you spending your time? What were you kind of fueled so by back then? If you remember the, the Caddyshack movie, um, I was a caddy scholar to the University of Washington. So, which meant I academically I had to qualify and athletically I had to qualify, but it was also financial needs. So, um, the answer is I grew up at a golf course, but I grew up picking up range balls and cleaning the toilets. I didn't grow up as a member. Okay, got it. And what were you, obviously, then you were a great student. I, I think I was an okay student, um, different standards at the time. We were in a little uh, blue-collar town in Washougal. Um, I had a graduating class of 101. Uh-huh. Um, I was student body president. Uh, of that's course a big you surprise. Were. And you um, have no surprise there. And you have siblings? I have one older brother. I had one stepbrother who passed away and two stepsisters. So blended family on that side, yeah. Yeah. And so who, at what point in your life did you realize that you were, uh, you know, driven? Like, where did you think that you were going to go? Is, are yeah. you far exceeding what you expected? Or are you like, no, of course, I've always known I was going to be. The bar always moves, right? So I would say, I'm, it's, it's, you know, the bar is always moving out. Um, so there's 101 people in my graduating class. I think seven of us went to college. Um, I could not wait to get it with all respect to the people who still live there, because most people live really close to where they grew up. Um, I just wanted to get out of that town because everybody was related to everybody and everybody was in everybody else's business and everybody went to work at the mill. And mm-hmm. I just, I just wanted a very different life than that. So, um, one of my friends that I had worked with actually got the same scholarship I was on was called Evan scholars. And he actually quit after one year and came back. And I was like, Oh my God, I would never quit. Like that would be just completely crazy. Yeah. Um, so I was super motivated to get out in four years because the scholarship was for four years. So yeah, you got to the... get in and out. And so how did you decide you ever did you just focus on that? Because that's... I applied to one school because yeah. that was the only school where the scholarship applied. So had it not been for that, I don't know that I would have gone. And you um, studied really speech communications. What were you thinking that you wanted to pursue with that degree? Well, originally I was kind of studying business, but I couldn't get into the business school. I wasn't that great of a student at the college level. So I could take uh, speech communications 
uh, which is actually where, you know, where I met my wife. And you would argue at the time where the pretty girls were as well. It wasn't a bad thing. Totally. Yeah. Um, so, and majored in public speaking and rhetoric and minored in business if the UW gave a minor. thought I was going to do economics for a while and realized it was like not practical enough. So um, I've always been a bit of a hack that way. Like, what's the shortcut to figure out? Like, I can't get into B school because I didn't like... No one is like, you're really going to need to get good grades if you want to get, and you're like, oh yeah, that was good. Except I was on academic probation after my first quarter. <laughs> so, <laughs> Did you have anyone like, you know, teachers, mentors, anyone that was helping guide you? Because it sounds like, you know, a seven graduating, going to college, um, who was there think- to kind of say, hey, this is the bigger life that you're looking for? Um, not much. Like I think, um, I, you know, my mom has passed away a number of years ago, but I think she was so happy that I was going to school and I was the youngest in that blended family of five kids. And I think everybody's happy to be empty nesters. And, you know, I have this reminder behind me, these, uh, photos of that I took when I worked for United Press. And so I was a, a photographer for United Press and, um, sat on the floor of the floor of the Portland Trailblazers for about a year and a half, two seasons. And, um, with a little bit of guidance, I could have been a, a great, uh, great photographer, but uh, I think I like my career. I've, I've, I've gone and done something and either been successful or, or marginally successful or failed at it and been like, ooh, just go do something else. <laughs> um, so in that yeah. sense, I've reinvented my career a number of times. Yeah. Well, but, speaking of your career, you've got, mm-hmm. you know, 20 plus years. We're going to we're going to keep ourselves young. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, your career is highlighted, as I said in the intro, your ability to innovate ideas and scale products and companies. But you've done a lot of things. And um how did you end up breaking into tech to begin with? Um, I, I originally got into telecommunications in the set early days of the mobile cellular industry, which by the, the, the back here is that you see that that phone. Mm. So my grand my grandfather was an entrepreneur. My dad was not. Um, so my grandfather had in 1911 had the first Ford garage in Camas, Washington in 1911, which is super interesting because the the um, the. Um, they weren't automating the process of the assembly line until 1913. So they mm. send the parts out to the locations and they'd reassemble them. And, but he sold that business too early. Other, otherwise there'd be a library with our name on it. And, <laughs> but he, he started the first phone company in Southwestern Washington. Wow. And okay. then sold that company too early and then finished his, his career as a running a local grocery store. So when I got out of college, I had a chance to get into the, the early days in the wireless industry, started off in, in video production, which was super interesting from a career development standpoint, because you were selling concepts, right? We were selling a, a video that would do training or do marketing, or, and you never had a product you could sell. You always had to sell somebody on the concept mm. and get them to say yes on the concept, which I think from a career development standpoint was great. Okay, when I look at startups, you're like, because you're pitching an idea and people have to buy into a vision of what it can do. But I made the transition from that services business to a product business in wireless early on and uh, in the mobile phone days early, right, where a phone was $2,000 and didn't work very well and um, weren't very cool. Today, they're still $2,000. They don't work very well, <laughs> but they are cool, Yeah. right? So early wireless days was a super interesting place to, to learn. Um mm-hmm. So the, wireless the telecom, and, yeah, wireless, telecom. and then made made the leap into uh, the IT staffing business um, was my first leap into software, and then from um, staffing went into the actual product business. Yeah, I don't think I realized that you had worked in staffing. Yep, good place to learn the ropes for sure. It's definitely that's amazing. Okay, so tell me, walk me through some of the highlights. Like you've had, as we um, will learn more in your mm-hmm. book. Um, I know that you've had some wins, some losses, peaks and valleys. Obviously we've had lots of successful people on the podcast and you've had your uh, fair share for sure of success, but tell me about some of the the learning. Well, you you know me, so you don't get revisionist history. You get the real, the real history. So the first company that I started was a company called license online. We started in 1998 and the service IT staffing company I worked for, we did big projects and Microsoft was one of our big, our biggest customer. So every every month, the Microsoft rep would come to me and say, hey, how much Microsoft software are you going to sell? And every month, I'd say, we don't sell software. We sell services. And after a while, Sean, and I went back and said, like, how many people do you ask this question of every month? He's like, all of them. I'm like, how many systems integrators are there nationally? He's like, 40,000. So the problem that we wanted to go solve was how do we make it easy for those systems integrators to actually sell software and do licensing? So we, we created a company called License Online. Uh, with a few co- a few co-founders, very few, and grew that company to the 32 million in sales and 155 employees in about three and a half years. 
So I've made a ton of mistakes. Like I'm, um, the scars on my back have healed, but I still get twitchy on occasion. Um, like building culture and product market fit. And, you know, when I look at that one now, uh, we sold the company in 2002, which if you remember 2002 was post, post the tech bubble and post 9-11. So we got yeah. it sold, but I would say like, mm, yeah, I wouldn't call Left it- Left some money on the table, yeah. Wouldn't call it a win, right? Yeah. As far as like, um, so return some shareholder money, but not all of it wasn't, you know, and people will be like, yes, but you learned from it. So it was still a success. That's BS. Like if you don't return shareholder capital, it's a failure. Now, did I learn something from it? Absolutely. But those things are two different things. Totally. Learning from your failures and your mistakes or having a failure or success is just revisionist history from someone who's never tried, right? So the people who typically say that are like, you should follow your passion because money will follow. That again, it's BS. It assumes that your idea that you're following is a good idea. So in venture, we, you'll hear it phrased as like, the idea doesn't matter, only execution matters. Again, it assumes it's a good idea. Right, that's so, all, assuming that there's product that people need. Right, so, so yeah, lesson learned on that one was margins were super rough and we were competing against the company we sold to did a billion and a half in revenue and we did 32 mm -hmm. million in revenue. So though we went from zero to 32, but like our next biggest competitor was a billion two and the two big competitors were 13 billion and 15 billion. Yeah, I, yeah. And we were selling Microsoft products. So the whole, the, the world was like going from a, you know, you know, when you switch dancing partners, Yeah. except all my dancing partners were gorillas, right? <laughs> and the answer is you're not through till he is. So a super rough business in retrospect, I wouldn't have started it. Like glad I learned a lot, but I, yeah. knowing what I know now, I'd be like, margins are super brutal. I wouldn't do it. Yeah. And so what, what, um, what's your next move? So uh, went from there and did an entrepreneur in residence gig with a company out of Tokyo called Mitsui and Company. Um, so large, third largest company in Japan, about 187 billion in revenue. So their venture fund had a product they wanted to take to market. So I, I did a project for them and went to work on their, um, their fund. It was a $250 million fund based in Cupertino. So it was my first foray into being on the other side of the table as a venture capitalist. Um, and the product we worked on there was a hardware product. Um, so that one was, we, it was the interesting exercise in the early days of like, this is an engineered product looking for a problem. So they had spent about a year and I don't know how much money in retrospect and six or seven engineers building a product. And they're like, we have this product here. Can you find a, pro a problem it will go solve? And which is kind of a classic startup dilemma, right? And at the time, I wasn't smart enough uh, in, at the beginning to say, that won't work. So it took about six months and went, that won't work. We should just mm. give the money back to the investors. Yeah. Um, great lesson learned, though, in like, you can't force product market fit. So if you remember, the, a company called Quibbly launched a, a year ago, right? And it was Meg, uh, Meg Whitman and right these famous people. They raised a billion dollars, right? And they burnt through it in less than a year. And even with a billion dollars, you can't force product market fit. Mm, I love right? that. That's you still have to go lesson. find it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so hardware in the VC launched a consulting company. We grew to about 65 people. I sold my portion back to my co-founder uh, and left that company after about eight, eight years, nine years, which is one of the longest timeframes I've ever done anything as a business. Yeah, because you've got all sorts of cool experiences. Yeah, for sure. And it, plus I'm easily bored yeah. to be candid, right? So it's yeah. like, um, other than being married to my wife for a long time, I've, I've been on one board <laughs> for 17 the, years. You did say in the beginning, you were like talking about innovator or integrator. And most yeah. of your experience from what I saw was founding companies. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a big fan of having founder on the card. It doesn't have to be CEO anymore, but having founder on the card matters. Yeah. I, I did join one movement in progress or I, one train in motion and probably the better analogy. So I did get to join a nonprofit after I did my fifth startup, um, I sold three of them, closed two of them, um, mm -hmm. and they were all singles. So I raised I raised twelve million and exited about eighty five. And so, meh, you know, okay, right. As far as what's left for the for the founder, depending on how much dilution you take, the answer is that sounds like a hell of a lot bigger number than it actually is. Um, so I did get a chance to join a nonprofit called Startup Weekend, and the parent company is called Up Global. So it was the merger of. Startup Weekend and Startup America. Uh, so when I joined there, we were doing about 500 events a year-ish and uh, doing so Startup Weekend is an event for those people who don't know. It's, you show up on Friday night, you pitch your idea. There's about 150 people, 125 people in the room. And by Sunday, six or seven teams pitch a demo product to a group of investors or entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And 
So I had a chance to help grow that. Uh, it was definitely a movement in progress, right? So the team that, um, I think the average age of the team was 28 when I got there. So I singularly brought up the average for sure. <laughs> and uh, I had Greg Gottesman on here talking about Rover from Startup Weekend. Oh yeah, fun. yeah. So it was a great yeah. Startup Weekend company. So there's been a number of um, unicorn companies that came out of Startup Weekend. So to give people oh, really? an idea of scope. Oh yeah, yeah. So Greg's Rover was one, but before Rover, there was at least two. One was out of Spain and one was out of uh, Brazil. That's amazing. So um, to put some perspective in it, so my last full year there, we sold the company to Techstars in 2015, but in the last full year, we did 1,265 events worldwide in 120 countries with 74,000 attendees, and which really got to why I wrote the book, because people would come out of this event and they're like, I met China, we're soulmates, we're going to go do a conference, we're going to leave our day jobs Monday. And I'm like, whoa, like before you do that, like, there are some things you can know about the yeah. startup before you yeah. like leave your day job and your benefits. So, so that was super fun. We sold the company to uh, Techstars in 2015. It became Techstars Community Programs, where it resides today. Um, and you know the the team at Techstars was great. They're like, "Here's our org chart. Where do you fit?" And I'm like, "I've never stayed with any company I've sold, so I don't fit." But thank you. And uh, so yeah, that's been the only one I've done interim CEO work where. You know, it's probably a sign that the company was for sale. Mm. Um, you know, with one of them, you know, I had a term sheet to sell this, the company in 31 days, and uh, the deal got kicked sideways, which was a bummer because I was like, it's, I was working on solidifying my brand. Oh, Dave's the CEO. The company's for sale. <laughs> you know, I met you, I think, at a GeekWire event, and I just remember thinking, like, this guy is so smart and so interesting, and um, I just felt like you were dialed and dynamic, but I, the biggest overarching feeling, and I know that it's even in your book is this whole give first idea. I felt that from you and that you're just about like, give, give, give. And at what stage in your career did you learn that that was important to you or like could actually help others and help you in return? Yeah, I'll definitely give credit where it's doing. Techstars has the hashtag give first that they kind of launched when they launched Techstars. And I definitely, uh, institutionalized it as we were doing startup weekend and others because I was part of the community before then, but that the line between like being an active part of the community and being deliberate about it was kind of pre startup weekend around how do you, how do you give to a community that doesn't have any money? Cause startups don't have money to spend. Right. So some people approach like, well, I'm going to take equity or I'm going to get paid. And the answer is if you're working with startups, you're not going to get either of those. Right. So, um, so that was kind of the, the, the start to it of like, you really need to just give first without anticipation of getting anything. And then if you get something back, then all the better, right? And so I think that that's, you know, institutionalized with Startup Weekend and the team there because they were very grassroots and we were doing stuff in, I said, 120 countries. Mm -hmm. So there was, what you were doing was you were empowering the, the facilitators and the local organizers to have an influence on their community. But because we were a nonprofit, they didn't make any money and we were raising money to support them. So the answer was, we're, we, we're giving you influence, but we're not giving you money. And that's super important. So I think today, as I look at what the work we're doing with uh, in Seattle and the Northwest and Washington State and a couple of the, the projects we're working on is like, how do we get more women entrepreneurs and more BIPOC founders and more people who are disenfranchised to have access and capital, because I think you, because you have to have both and not my words, there's words I've integrated from friends. Cause I, um, you know, like with the, the, the thing from Minnesota yesterday and just reaching out to some African-American friends going, how are you feeling? Cause I know earlier in my career, I blew that right. Where I'm like, I didn't, I was tone deaf to what was going on in their lives. And you're, you're being reflective on it and you do have a growth mindset and you know, yeah, and I think if we, if we, that's a good measurement, right, is am I better than I was before? And I'm a big fan of Carol's Dweck's book and of, and of you know, and one of the things I write in the book is I, I probably referenced 60 books in the book and trying to give credit where I saw that. Do. I'm like, you are definitely reading a lot. Yeah. And some yeah, incredible, it, incredible books that you've been reading. Yeah. yeah what, have there been fun. books that have had the biggest influence on you? Like, oh, this book, if there's any that I'm, I mean, aside from Trajectory Startup, are there any yeah. others that are like, this is the book I give out to entrepreneurs? Yeah, well, it depends on, so I ended up writing a blog post about it for, there's a group called GAN, which is a global accelerator network or GAN.co. They have about 120 programs that they help facilitate worldwide through local accelerators. And I ended up being a trainer with them for like the Mideast, Middle East stuff. And uh, 
So at one point they said, hey, would you just give us your list, your top 10 list? And I started to build it out. And I'm like, well, I have a top 10 classic business books, you know, um, like uh, Good to Great and, you know, those, those sort of, and then I have a, then I have kind of a top category startup books because it kind of depends on where you are for the startup, like if you're at the idea stage. Yeah, versus yeah. if you're at the scale stage or fundraising stage. Yeah. So, so through all this experience, what have you learned as your takeaways as far as like where where you excelled? Where's your ninja skill? If you were to go get hired somewhere, what role is it? A marketing role? Is it a sales? And it's role? it's probably I would say if it's a big idea in a in a willing CEO, it would probably be COO because I oh. think I can be a good CEO whisperer. Wow. Um, I'm at a point career-wise that I don't feel like I'd have to be CEO, but I clearly have control issues after being a CEO for 20 years, plus less years. Um, <laughs> so I think the, the, the thing there is like, I enjoyed, like I worked with Mark Nogger at Startup Weekend and Mark was an amazing visionary guy, a yeah. dear friend to this day. And, um, like it was great. Cause I'm like, I'm, I can, I've gotten good at processes and details. I'm not natively good at that. Right. So I, I spend most of my time on sell side merger and acquisition work and helping founders actually sell and, and land um, their deals and to get sold. Um, and how not do they big... find you? Like, who are these founders just from all of your relationships over the years? Yeah, a lot of it is, you know, from re- referrals like Techstars and 500 startups and, and local within the community. So, and our, our deal is the really targeting the, the founder who's at that point of like, okay, I can raise $5 million, which means I'm going to have to exit 50 million plus, and it's going to take me five or seven more years, or I could go sell now. So they're typically founder controlled. They're under the price point of most of the larger regional investment banks even care about, right? Because some of the big investment banks are like, we have to have a million dollar minimum fee. And it's like, yeah, that doesn't work for these size deals. So really helping them figure that out. And then that allows me some flexibility to work on other um, community building stuff and programmatic stuff and so, and it, so it ebbs and flows. Like my 20% is that, but sometimes my 20% is 100% because mm. I'm working on a, a particular program. Mm. So right right now with some on the board of the Washington Technology Industry Association and the, the board chair for startup programs there, and we're getting a, working on a federal grant of matching dollars to run, to scale up the programming we've done in Seattle to um, founders outside of Seattle. So Kent, Yakima, Wenatchee, where- well, Washigal, we'll see whether Washigal gets there or not. They're, that's kind of a suburb of Portland these days. Um, but, uh, you know, how do you help founders um, get access and get capital where they've traditionally been boxed out of that market? So the question is, how do we provide more access to those? So, so we're doing a bunch of programming stuff with WTIA and our, our numbers there are moving the right direction. And we also have to catch people early and help them uh, as far as the, you know, startup thinking and thinking about product versus service. And mm-hmm. so we're oh, trying to do some of those things as well. So, so yeah, that's, that, that kind of balances my time. I'm not, I'm not quite in a lawyer six minute increment billing stage, but yeah. my, if you looked at my calendar for today, you're like, you're kind of all over the map. When you're thinking about um, helping them think about selling, I know there's like a, I think, I was reading a book called Built to Sell, like mm-hmm. people working in the business versus on the business. Um, are you helping them just get it ready to sell? Like, hey, these are the things you're not ready yet. In order to get ready, these are the 10 things you need to do. Or are you making the connections between them and the acquirers? So it, a little bit of both. In the early stage, so one of the ones I'm, I'm helping out right now, we, we've known them for probably four or five months. And they're, one of the things that draws your valuation down is if, you're, if your revenue is super concentrated around a particular industry or a particular customer. So customer concentration is a bad thing in valuation. Yeah. So one of the things we helped them do is identify two new markets they could go after where they could get new customers, um, which worked out incredibly well. But it's just kind of when you're to your point, when you're when you're working in the business, you're kind of like, I'm focused on this and I don't really have perspective of the of the business. So uh, we were able to help them do that before they got ready to sell, uh, which is dramatically increasing their their valuation. So we'll go in and help them early on as, as far as like, here's the things we would want to address. that will impact your value. And then we go through the mechanical process of helping them find a buyer, you know, do wow. all that kind of stuff. Interesting. And so as far as um, your venture work. Mm-hmm. What types of companies are you looking at and what's the ideal portfolio company? Yeah. So uh, I would say I'm a random angel these days. I no longer run a fund. So I ran a family office fund for about three years and then worked at a venture fund here in the Northwest. So 
Um, I would say I'm a random angel when something really pops across where I'm like, ooh, I like that founder. Ooh, I like that idea. How many um, deals are you looking at on average? Or are you just slowing that down? Oh, I slowed it, slowed it down. Other than I'm, I'm looking, so from the WTA perspective, we bring in 20 to 25 uh, founders in every cohort twice a year. So I'm looking, so I'm mentoring fairly actively 25 companies during any particular six month period. Wow. Um, and that's really about the founder more so than the business. So we've taken them into the program because, you know, they're, we have women founders, we have BIPOC founders, we have, but we're there to support the founders first, knowing that this idea may or may not work. And that's okay because mm -hmm. th we want them to be able to work, right? So if this idea doesn't work, we want them to pivot to another idea. And since we're not a venture fund, we're not only considered about returns, we're considered like, how do we leave? So my, so the personal perspective is how do I leave Seattle better than I found it? Right. And so that's where the bar keeps moving. Right. I want to, mm -hmm. I want to keep getting the, it what's better. What's the vetting process to, to do these programs? Like, Yeah. So they, they, they actually have to go through an application process. Uh, we do two cohorts a year, 20 to 25 companies. They have to have a team. They have to have a product. They have to have some traction. So a little bit of market uh, confirmation some that product, they're working on yeah. something. Mm -hmm. okay. um, about 40% in this cohort, I think were women, uh, 25, 26% were uh, people of color. Um, so we're really trying to, to, you know, we could have looked at it and said, we're only taking the best companies and we're only going to take 12 because only 12 are really good. Mm. And the answer is, mm, no, it's about the founder, right? They it's not about, it's not about yeah. the business. And if they don't, if this idea, this particular idea doesn't work and we've still given them the, the tools and resources they need and the frameworks for them to think about for the next idea, um, and they'll still have relationships and access to capital that they didn't have before. So from that standpoint, that's kind of our, our measurement of success. And that is you leaving Seattle and the community a better place than you found it. That's That's got to feel good. A lot of people can't yeah. say that that's what they're focusing their career on these days. That's awesome. And yeah, so it's, um, always a, it's always this weird balance, right? But you're, it, it is a balance. But I would love to be a fly on the wall and watch you. I mean, in action, just the connecting and all the different things on your calendar. I can't imagine. So you've, you've been on several boards. Mm -hmm. um, you sit on boards right now. What makes a good board member? And if you're an entrepreneur, how do you think about putting together a board? Yeah, great question. So um, it's, it, the first off, it has to be somebody who's willing to support you as the founder and provide value for you, not just be there to watch their money. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of boards I've been on where it's like, you know, somebody who said that very professorial and provide advice. And it's like, I'm not sure you're actually listening because you ask the same question every other board meeting. Um, and a lot of that happens in the institutional board world because you're sitting on so many boards that you kind of, somebody pulls a string on your back and you get um, whatever their routine is. So I think it's, it's really the, does the person have capacity and willingness and experience to really add value to your board? So I'm a huge fan of independent board members relatively early on that balances out you with the founders and your institutional investors. And every institutional investor will say they add value. And some of them occasionally do, mm. but mostly they don't. Right. So, mm -hmm. and part of it is because there's just, there's stress. There's some practical reasons for it. Yeah. I have so, heard people talk about like, Hey, you need someone with like a finance and accounting background, someone with a little bit more of a, you know, just, just almost rounding out the C-suite, but like from a board perspective, from a, totally. from a practical skills. So are you, what role are you in that? As a board um, it's therapist and CEO coach. No, um, really go to market is mine. So I'd, I'd say the roles are kind of equally split. So for me, it's all about go to market. So marketing, sales, unit economics, the, the data, yeah. conversion metrics. Um, though lately it's been like, oh, that's a great question. And you should get a VP of sales and that mm. person or VP of marketing. And that person should be a woman and a person of color. Yeah, and so here's great. here's a list of people you should consider because I'm not available. Yeah. Um, so the important thing there is, I think, if you round out your as the, as the co-founders, if you look at the, we're weak in marketing. We can we have the money to hire a marketing director, but we don't have the money to hire a marketing VP. Then you should look for somebody who doesn't look like you, and hire them to be your independent board member with a CMO experience, who can help you set your strategies for marketing. And then provide some direction to, not as an operator, but provide some direction to your director of marketing to help them do that. The same is true with finance. Um, so the drawback is, is that the, the category of women on boards tend to be 
finance and HR, mm-hmm. right? Where they really need to be expanded to every category, COO to VP marketing, VP sales. There's just fewer women in those senior sales roles than there are marketing roles. So finding mm-hmm. that balance, because diverse teams produce better results. I mean, the data is super conclusive at this Absolutely. point. I'm not sure that anybody can argue with it. Yeah. We've actually been putting a lot of intention around it this past year and, and um, measuring it. And it feels good. It's like we're actually doing something to also hopefully leave Seattle a better place and this community a better place by putting um, more diverse uh, leaders into companies. So yeah, and I would yeah. encourage other folks who are in current board roles. It's it's very much like I'm. I get asked to come on be a panelist for um, Wenatchee has the, their flywheel conference coming up in May, and I'm like I'd rather not be on the panel. Like here's here here's a handful of people you should think about that don't look like me. And if you want me to do something else, like you want me to moderate something or support it, like, so I always want to have a list of people I can recommend. And here's a list of people you should think about. Yeah, that's (laughs) great. So you've got this book. Um, When mm -hmm. did you decide to write it? It's kind of a little bit of a life work. Um, Yeah, I think you could, you could probably, you could rush through the book from a reading perspective in a few days, given the fact that I read it to the audible narrator folks in about four. Um, But to do the work required to validate your idea, it's probably going to take you four to five, maybe six months. Oh my gosh. You have to do the work. Yeah. So, but I can tell you if you, if you read the book out loud every day in a small closet studio from, you know, (laughs) for five hours, it'll take you four days to read through it. (laughs) So it took you many years to write it. How did you pick the name? Um, we originally went with six month startup and I, because after coming out of startup weekend, we had startup weekend and startup week. And um, so I like the time constraint of like, you can do this in six months. And then we found we were delivering it on, you know, Saturday seminars for underrepresented founders in Kansas city. And it was four Saturdays. And then the boot camp version that we do in the Middle East is three days. And I'm like, okay, we have a brand problem that won't work. So uh, trajectory kind of sets the idea of like, if you think about your trajectory and your direction will determine where the company ends up. And if you don't deliberately set the, the trajectory, the analogy I use in the book is Apollo 13, right? And the, when the engineers come in the room and they dump all the stuff on the table and they're like, we have to get them back with only the crap we have on this table. And that's a little bit like running a startup, right? You're, yeah. you're under-resourced, you're, you're understaffed, um, Rushed. You're under pressure, right? Yeah. And you only have the, the shit that's on the table in front of you. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you got to figure out how to make it work. And what's the goal with the book? Like, what's the feedback been so far? And and do you feel like it's? Been, I guess how would you measure success? So so I think it's good. I mean, we've got uh, twenty eight or thirty five star reviews. Uh, the first one was super fun, Sean. It came from somebody I didn't know. Right, where I, I had a bunch of what they call galley copies, which is the pre-proofread soft cover versus the hard cover. And I was like, well, the, the book release date is officially this day, but Amazon doesn't take reviews until after that date. And then a review popped up and it was from somebody I'd never met. And I, I actually reached out to her on LinkedIn. I'm like, are you the person who wrote this review? And she's like, yeah, I am. And I'm like, thank you. This was like so awesome. So I, I've gone out of way to thank everybody who's written a review. So yeah, so that's the goal is to, I think on the negative side, the goal is to help founders not waste years of their life on a dumbass idea, yeah. right? And then on the positive side, Time matters so much, right? Because it's the thing you can never get back. Like I've lost money, I've made money, I can make money again, but I can't get time back, mm. right? So if I can help you compress this cycle and do it in six months instead of 18 months or 24 months, it's a win, mm. right? So that's kind of my gauge of success for the founders because as you know, there's no money, there's no money selling to founders as a consultant or a coach or people like, yeah. do you want to use this to drive your consulting yeah. business? I'm like, mm, yeah. no, actually. What, what advice do you give to founders as they're thinking about raising or not raising? Yeah. I mean, I, I think one of the big, one of the big things to keep in mind and Steve Blank said it best was um, when you, when you take on venture capital, you take on their business model. Right. So as a venture capitalist, I have a fund that has a, a term and it's 10, one and one It's 10 years plus two, one year extensions. And if I invest in your company at year five, that means I'm going to need you to exit in kind of year five to seven. So which may put me at odds with what you want to do as a founder. So make yeah. sure your goals and alignment are aligned with who your investor is. Um, and then recognize that raising capital isn't a sign of success. Yeah. Right? Raising, so what is the question that an entrepreneur awesome. should ask? If they're trying to see if they're aligned. Well, I would, I would ask where they are in their fund life cycle, right? Are they at the end of the fund life cycle or the beginning? Because the funds, you know, a, 
the definition of a successful fund is you raise another fund based on your returns. So where they are in the fund lifecycle, I'd ask them for referrals to other CEOs who they've invested in. Um, are they really just, are they really a value-added investor or is their cash just the same color as everybody else's mm. cash, which varies from region to region. I used to say green, but um, yeah. because you're going to find out quickly that their, their cash is just like everybody else's, but not everybody's cash is good. Not all money is good money. And so you researched these 2,500 companies. How did you choose which one? Like, what was the criterion for the companies that you chose? Oh, well, this, so this was this ended up this quest, which it wasn't intended to be. So uh, somebody came to me and said very simply, hey, can I have your financial model? I'm like, well, sure. But my model, I'm a B2B subscription company and you're a marketplace that sells to consumers. And those are those are different. So. Um, I reached out to the CEO of Crunchbase. Everybody, most people know Crunchbase as their inventor and uh, crowdsourced data. And I said, hey, can you give me a list of every uh, seed funded company over the last 18 months? So it ends up being 2,654 companies. And our original intent was to go back and look at all 2,654 and figure out what their revenue model was. So come to find out, there's 14. That's it. 14 and, revenue models? Mm -hmm. So you're in the that services like business. more than I would have like, I don't think I, I could I, think of 14. Yeah, you, you, well, you'd be surprised when you look at them. I and mean, we just did the public company comparisons on what the multiple revenues were. But so the so much to my surprise, we went through and looked at them and it turned into a, a five plus year longitudinal study of the success and failure rates of those companies. Interesting. And now I can look at a, a founder and say, your product, I hope your product is unique. It may be, it may not be, right? You could be doing a copycat of Rover's product in Mina. Right. Mm. And the answer is that's it's still a viable company. Yeah. But how you make money is never unique. So, you know, for example, are you a subscription business? Do you do metered service like AWS or Twilio? Right. Do you do a combination revenue model like uh, uh, Smartsheet does where you do services revenue for professional services because it shortens your sales cycle so you can sell more subscriptions? Mm. So all of the revenue models are basically like just pick. Right. So. Again, hopefully your idea is brilliant and amazing and can be a unicorn, but even all the unicorns, we looked at all the, the CB Insights data of the, of the 500 unicorn companies, there's nothing new there. They're all, they're on, they're all in the 14. How interesting. And by the way, if there is a 15th, I'm totally happy to write about it because I'd be geeked out about it. But my experience with founders is like, you're not going to invent a new product and a new revenue model at the same time because it compounds yeah. the complexity. Yeah. Interesting. And so, I mean, there's so many key takeaways based on this research. We got the 14 revenue models. We've got the Venn diagram, which I thought was really interesting. Um, you know, I'm curious more just like reality check when you said, hey, let me just make sure that you're not wasting time and that you actually have a product. That that's at the end of the day, the net net. If you don't have a good product, it doesn't matter if you raise a billion dollars or if you've got the most kick-ass team, like nobody wants what you're selling. Um, how do you know, like how much time should you give yourself to know if there's product market fit? Well, I think there's, there's a couple of phases. One is first the ideation stage. One of the things I walk people through is there's 11 frameworks in the book for what makes a good idea. It's like Rich Barton, who started Expedia within Microsoft and then started Zillow outside of Microsoft. His, his approach to the idea was power to the people, right? So you take a, a data set that is opaque and make it visible to the customer. So that's one example of a framework to think about your idea. Is it truly transformational or is it incremental? So in, in the case of Airbnb, they went after a completely new and nascent market. And if you look at the, the biggest valuation companies over the last five to 10 years, they're all about new and nascent markets. So Uber was a new and nascent market. Um, you know, Stripe was a nascent market because they were taking transaction fees down from the expensive card readers down into your phone, right? So all of the multi-billion dollar unicorn companies have to do with new and nascent markets, but timing matters. So if, for example, you have a great product into a new and nascent market, but the market's not ready for you, it's not gonna work. Mm. So, you know, there were so people the who tried part, to do- that's the important thing. Like, how do you know if it's the wrong timing? Yeah, and the answer is you'll only really know in retrospect or if you're exactly. a VC. If you're a VC, you always know because you're, you're clairvoyant. Um, right. No, I always chuckle because they're like, our timing in that investment was great. And the answer was, you actually didn't do anything other than invest in founders who did the work. Yeah. Now, there are some meta factors you can look at. So is, do we have tailwinds or headwinds, right? So if you're like, we're going to do a new, you know, you and I are going to build a new car company now that's focused on internal combustion engines. I'd be like, uh, that's, a, not a, that's, not a, that's a total headwind. 
right? No investors are interested in, in internal combustion cars. So, um, you know, so do you have headwinds or tailwinds? And COVID has been this really wacky thing, right? Where it created a massive tailwinds for some companies and it created massive headwinds for others that failed. Mm. Um, and those who pivoted, right, really understood and acted quickly. Some of them took advantage of that, that tailwind. Mm-hmm. Are there some that come to mind for you or the ones that had just like massive tailwinds? Well, I think that one of the categories actually is super crazy, right? So a year and a half ago, if you were like, I think ed tech is going to be sexy. I would have been like, you're, you're crazy, no way, right? And then sure enough, the migration to everybody to online for students and taking care of students and grades and reporting and right, it, it, the fact that ed tech is now like a sexy yeah. category is yeah. amazing, Yeah. right? So at the same time, travel got tanked but the pent-up demand for travel that's going to come back and the pent-up demand broadly for experiences that are going to come back is going to be super exciting. So, you know, will there be another new great hot travel app? Travel and dating are kind of similar, right? There's always something that comes out that's new. So those are some fun, you know, some fun trends for sure to look at. Yeah. And so when you're, um, you know, you wrote the book and you work so much with entrepreneurs, what to you are your biggest indicators of like, success the people the idea the timing and the market right i think think ultimately it starts for me with like the size of the addressable market is that what you're talking about yeah so i think there's so i think it was as sliders versus independent things right because i think that's an easier way to go like what kind of depends um i wrote a blog post that i i kept up intentionally rather than rewrite it and have revisionist history and originally i would have told you early in both my own entrepreneur career and then being an investor, it's like, us. Oh, it's about the team. But my observation after looking at all this data is that even a fantastic team in a marginal market are going to just do meh. Yeah. Where, where a, a marginal team in a fantastic market can be blockbuster. So I, I think of that one as kind of a 1A and a 1B, Shana, where it's like 1A is market and 1B is team, um, then timing and then, and then product. Right? Mm. But timing's timing's tough because you have to look at it and go like generally is it the you know Airbnb was great timing because coming out of the recession people were like well I guess we can loan out a room for you know to a stranger for eighty five dollars a night seems kind of creepy but <laughs> I need to make my mortgage so yeah. maybe I will right so timing matters a lot but you, I think you only know that in retrospect I don't think you know it looking forward yeah what are some other key nuggets that you want anyone listening to know from your book, if they haven't had a chance to read it. And by the way, everybody should read it. Hmm, thanks. So I, I think the, you know, one of the f- first um, pe- people who wrote a review on it said, Dave is like that friend who will tell you you have spinach on your teeth. Oh, I love that. I totally right. feel like that. That's so funny. And, it, and I'm like, that, that's, so that's an awesome way to, because I, I'm, I'm not intentionally blunt. I try to be direct. So I think one of the big things if you're like, this is a stupid idea, then I'd like somebody to tell me, like, should I, do I want to know in six weeks, six months, or six years? Yeah, you save me some time and money. So my goal is to help you look at it and go like, rather than me be pedantic about it, I used to be much more so. But now I'm like, like, well, here's the questions I would ask, right? Yeah. So I was on a, on a call the other night with somebody who was like, we're doing this. And every time I'd say something, he said, yeah, but. I'm like, can I just stop you right there? Like, I don't mind if you say yes and, but when you say yes, but, what it tells me is you don't give a shit about what I'm telling you, yeah. right? In which case, you're just going to run headlong into a wall. Not that I have the answers to all things, not the point. The point is, is I'm telling you what questions I would ask if I were you. And I think what the book is really trying to do is to say like, so think of it this way, uh, Shana, there's, there's a thousand ways your startup can fail. And I can't tell you all thousand of them. But I'm, what I'm going to try to help you do is figure out like, listen, there's probably one question that's the most critical question you need to answer today. Does the customer care about my product? Mm. Can I charge for it? Yeah. Right. It's not, should I buy, is it repeatable? Yeah. It's not, should I go buy red or blue file folders? Right. That's not, that's not the question. That's busy work you can do. Right. And coders will be like, I'm just going to write more code. And the fact is you just need to get out of the building. Like Steve Blank used to be on my board. So you, it's, you know, Steve's comment was you got to get out of the building and go talk to the customers. And, you know, I, I will have people joke, say, not jokingly, well, you know, Henry Ford said, and I'm like, listen, my grandfather owned a Ford garage. So let me tell you something different today versus then. 
1911, there was no internet. <laughs> and Henry was right. Today, however, people have options. So you asking them if they wanted a faster horse is not really, you know, that's why I think Steve Jobs was the weird anomaly and all that. But I'd say try to build something transformational that changes the world or go make a shit ton of money and then give it all away. Yeah. But I don't, it's hard to do both of those things. I think you can either go make a ton of dough and give it away or you, I think there are hybrids that can allow you to do a little bit of both and make a difference in the world. Um, but those are hard, right? Because yeah. you, they, they all are they all go back to the 14 revenue models. Like you're not gonna create, you're not gonna say we're a for purpose company that has a completely new model. I'm gonna be like, cool, what, what's the model? And they're gonna be like, we're going to discover it. And I'm like, then you'll fail, yeah. you're a nonprofit. Or at least you'll <laughs> fail as a for purpose entity. You can succeed as a nonprofit, but you'll never stop raising money. Yeah, so you've got all this going on. How do you set yourself up for a good week and stay organized? You said it's not, it's not yeah. nascent, but like you're doing something right as far as keeping yourself organized and balanced so tactically speaking i do time blocking um okay. i read it i've read a lot less since we've been in the pandemic um because i so much of what i consumed historically was on audible um I, dan rossi and i created a, a thing of like hey let's read 100 books a year which was great for for about three years and then i was like oh my god it's just grueling because you have no other hobbies <laughs> but to do that and travel and audible and that so still a super active reader but i i time block my calendar there's calendar access to my calendar, but um, it's limited time availability for sure. Um, there are exceptions that I'll make for that, but for the most part, you know, my mornings are my most productive time, whether I'm writing or working on projects. So you don't get on my calendar before noon, unless you're special. I feel special. It's it's, it's we started at eleven. <laughs> yeah, and I don't, you know, I don't have a, a team I'm managing these days, and that's kind of a disappointment for me because every once in a while I'm like, oh, I miss investing in people and building a team. That was that's such a great satisfaction driver. So I might, you know, there's there is some like, would you do it again and go, you know, be the CEO of a company? It, maybe if it was the right opportunity. Um, I probably won't start at the founder founder stage because the the five years you spend getting to where you make a reasonable income is super hard. And at this point in my career, I'm, you know, this is all about how do I save for retirement in such a way that I can enjoy the same lifestyle I have right now. So it's all about you know, that, that part still works, but if it's a big idea, um, I would definitely consider it. And, but yeah, that's, those are my tactical things. Like I, mm. um, if, and if, you work out, that's good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Peloton wise and, and outside riding. So I'm a cyclist. I had a new hit put in about five years ago. If success is choosing your parents well, I totally failed. <laughs> so so that became my exercise routine. Yeah, I love it. Okay, so my, my final question for you mm -hmm. is what fuels you? You know, I, I think at the end of the day, it's about making a difference, right? So the, the way I finished the book was, hey, if you need a training buddy, let me know. So I have a, a good friend who... Uh, I've, you know, we, we trained for the Ramrod ride. So it's oh, right around about right near a year. That's awesome. So um, it's about three years ago now, two, three, it will be three years ago this summer. So um, I trained like a madman and, you know, cause I've, I've seen you in this, in what used to be the spin, spin cycle classes when you went to somewhere in person. And that first, that January, February, March that year, I trained 24 times a month on average. Ugh. So in um, that year, I rode 5,600 miles because this one ride was 154 miles and 10,400 of vertical. So what I would encourage people with is like how you train when nobody's watching. That's what it's all about. Yeah. And if you need a training buddy, let me know. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.